they would be somewhat elongated. <laughs> Pulitzer Prize-winning anthropologist Ernest Becker proposed something controversial and compelling, which has led to an active area of research called terror management theory. And he proposed that what truly motivates our actions is the fear of death. Unfortunately, not consciously, mainly subconsciously. Every fiber in our being is trying to survive. You know, just right now, there are trillions of biochemical processes going on that are there to keep this host, this body of this host going. Um, but psychologically speaking, it's too terrifying for us to confront our own death, our, the, 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 the true reality of our finality, too terrifying. So instead, what we do is we, um, we fool ourselves into thinking we can become immortal. And the way that we become immortal is through becoming a hero and leaving a legacy. So the idea is that culturally speaking, there are many different ways of becoming a hero. If, if you're a female amongst single friends and you get married, you're now a hero in their eyes, right? <laughs> they want to rock too. They want that you know, lifetime commitment from their husband too. In academia, there's a progression from PhD to postdoc to lecturer, senior lecturer, associate professor, professor, emeritus professor, and you can be an emeritus professor at Harvard, you know? So there are ways of becoming a hero in your career. There's a way of becoming a hero in gymnastics, level one, level two, up to level 10. Past level 10 to Kohei Chomura, you know? <laughs> He's a hero. So there are, there are lots of ways of becoming a hero um, and all of those ways are culturally determined. They're totally arbitrary. They have nothing to do with you. So let me read this quote, which I think you're going to love, from The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. This is from chapter five. I love how you very casually say they're totally arbitrary and have nothing to do with you. Yeah. That's, that's huge, but very cool that you just like play it off. <laughs> it is huge. It's huge and obvious, but needs to be said. Yeah, absolutely. Chapter five, the psychoanalyst Kierkegaard. This is page 82. I think you're going to love this quote. The social hero system into which we are born marks out paths for our heroism, paths to which we conform, to which we shape ourselves so that we can please others and become what they expect us to be. So instead of working on what makes us truly unique, we gradually cover it up and forget it, becoming purely externally driven. This is the mic drop moment. Playing successfully the standardized hero game into which we happen to fall by accident. <laughs> so the way that you're trying to become a hero in getting that promotion or getting that car or getting that girl or whatever it might be you're become you're trying to become a hero in a way that was that is culturally determined has nothing to do with you i mean just imagine how long it would take for you to you know there are surviving hunter-gatherer societies in the world imagine how long it would take for you to explain to this dude why you need to be part of middle management at ibm <laughs> i mean you know, so clearly culturally determined. Um, and so what motivates us 
we feel that we're choosing it. I want to have my wedding my way. But the fact that you want to get married at all, you're, you're playing the wedding game. That is totally culturally determined and has nothing to do with you. It was around before you were born. You were dropped into it, thrust into it, um, not by your will. And so it feels that we have a certain degree of autonomy, but we're playing, um, we're playing in a game. We might, we might think that we're playing by our own rules, but we're playing within a game that's totally culturally and arbitrarily determined, has nothing to do with you. Um, and so, so you might ask, you know, well, how, how is it that we escape? Uh, that doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> Game, yeah. Games can be fun. Game, you know, and there's nothing wrong with trying to become a level 10 gymnast, is there? You know, because there is, um, there's a wonderful, you know, there, there's a progress that happens and you grow as a person in doing that, you know? Yeah. The point is that a lot of the games that we play are not played consciously. Mm-hmm. Most of the games we play are, yeah. not, are not played consciously. And, and, and I suppose that the, the key idea here, the revolutionary idea is that this is a, the reason that it motivates us so is because we want to delude ourselves into thinking that the finality of death isn't a reality. Mm. Yeah, all about the legacy and being remembered. Yeah. Somehow that keeps you... Yeah. I, was, I, was this, I, was, um, I think it was Alex Hormozzi talking about how, like, you know, the queen is, is one of the most powerful women that's ever lived and amassed this incredible amount of wealth, blah, blah, blah. And yet you've probably never thought about her once today. <laughs> you know, and she only died like last year or something. I have now. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but you understand my point. Yeah. That you yeah. can be this incredibly powerful and important person and you're forgotten rather quickly. So I don't know if legacy is something to aim for. Yeah. <clears throat> That's why I guess hmm. uh, things I'm thinking of is like how scientific discoveries and that and particles and that are named after certain people sometimes right yeah uh and even with gymnastics certain skills if you're the first person to do a skill that yes. gets named after you yes so in that way every time someone's talking about the diametrov shot or kovacs like they're referring to someone in yep. a way but i guess you don't really think about that um person sure. that, but sometimes i do but yeah hmm and so are we saying that um, it's interesting to be aware of this? Um, mm-hmm. And is it to, to be then aware of that and then make your decisions, just being more self-aware, basically? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it can become, you know, so on the next page, actually, he talks about how it, it can be disturbing to think about breaking the social order. Very, very difficult to decide that you know I don't want to get married or don't want to have kids or there are more extreme ways of not playing the game um, and it's difficult to do that because there is a social pressure not to do that yeah why would you not want to play the game I think f- to a certain extent some parts of the game are okay it's just the ones that you don't know that you're playing you know so for instance you know if you're trying to get a job, you know, middle management at IBM or whatever it might be, not, not saying that that's not your, you know, that might be the way that you're actually expressing your uniqueness, you know, that's possible. But oftentimes 
we go into a job that you know we don't like we're, we're spending time with colleagues that we don't respect um, we're um, carrying out these monotonous actions in order to get a paycheck in order to you know what I live in a place that you might not even who cares you know do we do you even like this apartment do you like this job do you really need that promotion do you want it do you do you feel that that's in alignment with who you truly are yeah and do you think so I can go back to um, he has an amazing quote about maybe what you should be aiming for but um, there's this idea that you want to cultivate your interiority you, you want to cultivate what's really unique about yourself and that's not simply selfish like that'll be incredibly fulfilling for you but it'll also just be that much better for the world because you're cultivating what makes you special and what you can uniquely bring to the table mm. and oftentimes we in our careers we don't necessarily do that we cut as he says we cover it over and become like everybody else yeah so it's, it's more about intentionally choosing the games you want to play as opposed to yeah uh, without considering it um yeah. doing what you feel is expected of you even if that's at odds with your values or um yeah yeah interests and yeah and i guess the point that i'm making is that that happens quite insidiously it happens very gradually mm. and and then what happens is that you now think oh i always did want to be a lawyer you know, it it's so it becomes so ingrained in you that you now think that it actually is an uh, an authentic motive. Yeah. But so it's like maybe if you find that everybody around you has the same goals as you, it's time to pause and reflect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and in general, I'd say constant reflection is necessary. Like not incessant, but. If I personally probably go periods um, without reflecting, if it, if it becomes a long period, yeah, I can too. get off off course, you know, or like realize oh, I'm not probably spending too much time in this area, you know. Um, so yeah, because things change as well, of course, and your your priorities and that will shift as well. But only when you are consciously, often, and maybe maybe sometimes it'll be obvious, but yeah. Mm. And maybe on that we were talking about uh, morning pages, which is uh, yeah. Nick will give you a better. Um, I'll let I'll let you um, give a quick r rundown on what morning pages is. Yeah, so it comes from a book called The Artist's Way, um, and the basic idea. Well, her idea is, is about getting to the muse, so um, getting to a place where your inner. Yeah, there's this belief that everybody's kind of like has this creative spirit within them, the muse, that is there and potentially covered up. And a way to get to that is by simply writing down, and I think it's three pages, three long form A, um, A4 pages. You write them by hand and you do this first thing in the morning. And the idea is that it kind of just gets you out of this um, incessant, you know, droning ways of thinking, what are my problems for today? You know, what have I got on the agenda? All those things, just get them out and get into this place where you're writing without thinking and see if you can kind of sustain that. And that's because three pages is a significant amount and so most of your problems will probably be written out on the first page, say? I, I, I suppose, I mean, I, I did morning pages for a while and then sometimes I wrote more than three and sometimes I would write less. Yeah. And nowadays I just use it when I feel, feel that I need it. And then that makes me think, 
it's a tool but don't let your tools control you yes right where if you were like oh i have to write three pages yeah, and you're whatever. forcing yourself but you know we talked about this though yeah, Lockie, because yeah. you mentioned that it was difficult for you in the beginning and then i told you about what i'd written the previous day which was i don't want to do this yeah, this yeah. is so fucking ridiculous <laughs> it's so funny how you know you can you can get to a place of creativity through frustration and anger mm-hmm. if you simply allow yourself and i feel that this is um this is one of the things that i learned about mindfulness is just allow just allowing don't judge just allow and similarly with um with this writing practice i mean if you're frustrated there's nothing bad with being frustrated you label it so so just allow it you the, the reality is you're frustrated so let's just write about being frustrated yeah mm. and eventually you know you 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 write to a place where in my experience there's something something deep is on the other end of that <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah because i've done it too nick and i spoke about it maybe two years ago or something and uh yeah it was very insightful it was funny it's it's probably never something i feel like doing um but it would make things quite clear in some respects to me as in mm. Oh, I really should do that thing today because mm-hmm. you know I've put it off a couple of days. Or yeah. clearly, it's just an important thing to do. Um, yeah, but then we were also talking about uh, not needing to do it every single day, uh, and there being better periods of your life to do it. Sure. Um, do you want to talk a bit about that? Where sure, it, depending on how busy you are, or if you're in a state of change. Yeah, so this came from a book called uh, Insight by Tasha uh, Urich, I think is her name. Um, And so the book is about um, how to gain self-insight. And uh, to my mind, there are kind of three important ways of getting there. One of them is meditation or mindfulness. There are lots of different ways of meditating. But one way is to simply observe your thoughts. Another way is psychotherapy, um, which can be helpful. And then a third way is journaling. Turns out journaling is an excellent way of getting, gaining self-awareness, but there are good ways to journal and there are bad ways to journal. One bad way of journaling is to ruminate. You know, you talk about your problems and then you go around circles, not trying to, not getting anywhere important or useful. And so if you do this every day, you now convince yourself that the world is bad, that your life circumstances are horrible and inescapable. It's kind of like a learned helpness, helplessness thing that can, can, can occur. So it turns out that the best journalers journal when they're going through periods of transition. Now, what I would say is that for me personally, it was important that I had a period of like intense uptake where I did it for quite a while. And actually the first time I started journaling was right after there was a Stoic conference in Athens. The first time the Stoic con had been in Athens. So cool you went to that, right? I'm really happy that I went. It was funny because I, I asked, I was doing my PhD in medical physics at the time. I said to my boss, can I go to Athens? I, I want to go to a conference. He's like, what on? I was like, philosophy. And he was like, yeah, yeah. So, he, I mean, he gave me the time off. But it was just hilarious that I went to this conf- conference across the world that had to do with philosophy. But one of the things that kept coming up amongst people there was, first of all, they highly, they, they all talked about how important the meditations by Marcus Aurelius was for them. A lot of them talked about that. And a lot of them talked about how you need to get the right translation. 
And so I remember reading the Penguin translation of um, the meditations and just being like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. And it really turned me off, Marcus. Yeah. Then I read the Gregory Hayes translation that everybody um, had kind of um, had suggested. Got back, got, when I got back to Sydney, I bought a copy of it and it really was an incredibly different experience. Um, so that was the, one of the things that they had mentioned at StoicCon. And then the second thing was a lot of them said what they did was they journaled in the way that Marcus journaled. And oftentimes what they would do is they would take a quote from the meditations, think about it, write it in their own words, and then try and live it. That, so that is actually the way that I started to journal, which is that um, when I got back from Athens, I read that translation of the meditations in two days. <laughs> and I went through and highlighted... It's a lot of knowledge in two days. Well, it's, a, it's actually a, a rather short book, but yeah, it is, it is a lot well, of insight. It's, it's dense though, right? Yeah. I mean, I had read it before, yeah. so it was kind of like rereading it just in a great translation. And so what I had done was I highlight all of the things that kind of stood out to me. Um, and then what I did was, was for a year, I would go through and look at a passage that I'd highlight. I'd write it in my own words, think about it, and then try and live it. So that might take two, day, two pages to kind of explain what it is, or maybe just a page or half a page. You know, it's, this wasn't, I didn't know about morning pages in those days. Um, and I did that for a year, and it was very transformational in just helping me think in kind of a stoic, more stoic way. That's so cool. So you'd write out uh, a particular idea. Yeah. However long it takes you to write in your own words. Yep. And then you try and live that. Yeah. Uh, and and whenever the opportunity arose in yep. your daily life. Yep. That's that's really cool. That sounds like a fun exercise. And and it was fun. Yeah. Then once you'd live that out, what then you'd uh, the next day write out a different. Yep, different one. And, yeah. you know, the idea, I think, is that... And the thing is, like, there were more days in the year than there were quotes that I picked up from the book. So I would go back over, right? So um, it's not as if I thought, okay, I learned that, you know, now I'm done with it. And I actually still often will go back to the meditations in my journaling, often. Um, so, yeah, the idea is that you... Fo I think it's important that you focus on one thing per day, try and get it done. And then hopefully it kind of lingers and it carries over. But also, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm imperfect. So then I'm, I assume that I'd, I'll lose it or I won't have done it properly. And then, you know, the beautiful thing is you come back to the quote. It's different. It's different now. Yeah. You're a different person. Yeah. It's different. And, um, yeah, so I did that for a year and found that to be very useful. Um, and then, yeah, I, I don't know how I came across morning pages, but the morning pages were very different for me because um, it, like, it, it was just whatever is in my head and not to judge it. I think the first time around, um, you know, journaling with Marcus, it was quite goal-oriented of like, or at least prescriptive, you know, this is how you should be living kind of thing. Then with morning pages, it was just like, what's here? You know, what's going on in my head? No judgment. Let's just see what's here. Um, Did and you find the no judgment part tricky? Because yeah. that's no, I, it, it almost seems unnatural in that the, the norm of society perhaps is to judge uh, maybe not everything, but a lot of things, right? Even your own thoughts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't because I had seven years of meditation 
yeah. prior. I had uh, practiced that. Uh, yeah. Um, so not necessarily. It was d- different, but not uh, difficult. Yeah. I think that even that's an interesting insight. I think for a lot of people, they may not have considered if they're judging their thoughts and and maybe even they're judging things that need not be judged and instead just accepted. Mm. You know, probably for a lot of things, it's just yeah acceptance of it of the thing and yeah yeah. I find it. I've got a friend. He's very refreshing in the sense that um, he'll he'll even be aware that he has he has a value of X, and then in some instances he will do something that contravenes that value. Yeah, and it's refreshing that he says, "I know that's stupid, but that's just." what I do sometimes or yeah and he's like I know it doesn't align but it's it's just cool because most people would um deny it or try to reason you know oh actually well because in this case da 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 and try to make it a thing the fact that he just addresses the uh with like I guess it has less judgment the you know what I mean it's somehow refreshing um yeah it's interesting and it makes me um like him more because it, it, it just feels like he's honest you know what I mean mm-hmm. deep like at the end of the day it's just being honest um, and that way he could I guess if it was a real if the thing was a problem he could change as opposed to mm-hmm. if he was uh, making up a story to explain oh well this happened in this case then it seems less likely to be something that you could change later mm-hmm. you know um, because you'll yeah so mm-hmm as you know, when I was do- when I was in Athens, I did a seven day water only fast, and um, I had what a, what a great trip you had, man! It's so cool, <laughs> the same one that you were, yeah, at the Stoic conference, yeah. yeah. And so you have all these, uh, uh, you know, so you have all these apparent insights. You know, uh, you know, fasting can be, I wouldn't say psychedelic, but it's definitely you're in a different mental state, and. I sometimes felt that I was having these great insights. So I'd write them down and, you know, most of them were fucking nonsense. It's just the <laughs> <laughs> low you blood sugar yeah. moron. <laughs> but I did have one thing that I'm not sure was totally profound, um, but is just interesting, which was take the world seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously. Mm. So that, um, you know, maybe there are prescriptive things out there of like live a stoic life and all of those things. Um, but you will fail because you're just a chimp. Um, and, you know, if you read, you know, even if you read the meditations, he, you know, he's talking about how he fails a lot of this stuff. Like, come on, man. Why are you being so selfish? You know that justice is a virtue. Why are you doing all this stuff for yourself when you should be thinking about other people? And that's, again, you know, it's like with your friend, you said that it makes you like him. I think that's why the meditations are so like, like Marcus is so likable. Because he's like, he has these incredible ideals and he, but he's not living up to them some of the time. You know, he seems like quite a laudable person. Um, Interesting that you say, um, come on, you're being selfish. Because that was something I realized um, and I'm sure we were talking about it um, that being selfish isn't always a negative thing and again if you I think often that's, yeah. it's a negative label yep when it, again it need not be it can just it be, need not be that's just how it is yeah and and then further than that I think there's times when definitely being sel- selfish 
Yeah. It's funny, even saying it, I feel like it's a, I'm saying a negative thing. Yeah, but, yeah. But in times, being selfish is actually the right thing to do. And, uh, mm. you know, because ultimately it just means mm-hmm. uh, focused on oneself, right? Mm-hmm. Which many times would be for the greater good because, um, mm. yeah, you know, like if, if, if you're living completely selflessly, at a certain point, perhaps you do nothing for yourself and hence you can't contribute anything, mm. you know? So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, t- two things, man. First, it reminds me about how um, with, with Buddhist meditation, one of, the, one of the reasons that you would do that is for the benefit of all beings and not just yourself. That this, I- There's this idea that becoming an enlightened person and everybody has, everybody has the potential for Buddhahood within them. But becoming an enlightened person um, is for the benefit of all beings. You might ask, you know, what, well, how is that? And, you know, maybe there's some metaphysics that we don't want to go into. But if you're, um, an, if you're an equanimous, calm, peaceful person, just think about how that has an effect on everybody. You know, when I came over here on the bus, the bus driver was one of those people who was so jolly. You know, and it just, I, I think that it has an impact on kind of the the emotional tone of the of the bus you know when i got on i was like hey good morning man yeah. and i think that that you know as opposed to like you know maybe another bus driver that's not so much like that it has an impact so first of all i think that um you know selfish again doesn't necessarily have to mean zero sum i'm taking therefore you're you're um, getting less um and also when i think that when we do things that are truly fulfilling for us Oftentimes we do a better job. Just think about the person that's doing their job because they feel that they're fulfilling their personal, there's something within this job that it feels like I was meant to do this and I feel that I'm fulfilling my purpose and I feel um, that I, I love what I do. Just think about how more effective that person is in being productive in whatever they're doing versus the person that's not doing it out of self-interest. You know, they, they feel that they're sacrificing. Oh, there's taking taking you know this job is taking my time it's taking my attention you know it's taking my life from me you know yeah so that is almost selfless and even those (laughs) thoughts are uh distracting and yeah ultimately not gonna necessarily make yeah yeah it's energy and time thinking about that where it could be applied to the, the work i was thinking as well recently you went into the cave and i didn't i i you were like we didn't communicate for maybe six months, maybe okay. more. And it was funny because I really wanted to talk to you in that time, but I, <laughs> I respected that, you know, I knew that you were doing something. Um, and maybe you could see that as selfish on your part, but I really like it because, you know, I all I could ultimately think was like, this is cool, like Nick's uh, in a... Um, He's like processing something or whatever he's doing, it's intentional and I'm sure there's a good reason for it. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm glad he's doing that. I'm excited to, hopefully, when <laughs> he comes out, I can talk to him and, uh, yeah. So, mm, that's another thing maybe uh, when people are being selfish. Again, I think that the norm might be to think, oh, that's, that's not a, a becoming quality like that's maybe not someone I want to um, be friends with or something. Yeah. Um, but really, uh, it could it could be the opposite where 
again, because I, I think in your case it was, we, and feel free to, we can chat about that period, but um, yeah, I love the intentionality and I'm sure like the intensity behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's probably not the, definitely not the easiest uh, way to live in that respect. Um, and even like for athletes in that, I think you have to be selfish oh. to be an extremely high level athlete, right? Yeah. But we, res- you res- I just, like you've got to, th- that's another thing I was thinking as we we're talking about this. Maybe selfish is only a bad thing if you're thinking really low level about it. But if you mm. think deeper about it, mm-hmm. like you said, how um, for society, um, mm. then it could be a positive, depending on what the thing is. But again, I would, I would say the athlete that's being selfish to get to be an incredible. Um, I, I'll use Uchimura as an example. It's funny. I, I, I have immense respect and I do not think he's selfish at all. But let's, let's just say he was very okay. selfish to get to where he got to. Um, it's definitely worth it because uh, he's inspired so many people and he's now like this icon, like a beacon. You know, he just gives me really excitement and motivation. And I'm sure for a lot of people. Uh, so, yeah, if you think the big picture there, I see. it's uh, a net positive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I was um, a friend of mine told me about was how if you want to do what's best for everybody, that includes you. Um, that was a big that was a big eye opener, because oftentimes when we think about doing what's best for everybody, we do so in an altruistic way that forgets about what's best for you. And it can become quite um, self, like you forget about your you as a as an individual. What's the word I'm looking for? Like it can be self-destructive, um, maybe. Um, so it's important to include yourself in the calculus of what's best for everybody. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, you know, with my period of like being quiet, um, what I found is that everybody that was close to me that cared about me respected it and was happy that I did it you know that's cool and when I came back they were just like and if you want to go back then go back you know (laughs) everybody was very supportive and you know what I thought about is like you know if somebody even your parents if well (laughs) maybe not as much (laughs) 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 but you know here's what I would say man it in the in the case that somebody doesn't want you didn't want me to do that and then said that what I'm doing is selfish they just want me to do what they want me to do, mm-hmm. which I think is selfish. Yeah. When you want someone to do something that is more convenient for you, I think that that's selfish. Um, and I, do, I don't it's understand... It's not a bad thing. Let's keep that in mind. Yes! <laughs> I don't understand the... Yeah, that's a good point. I don't understand... Like, I, I, have, um, I have difficulty understanding when people are mad because other people aren't doing what they want them to do. What like why doing it why are you doing it that way, man? Yeah. It's their life. Yeah. Leave them alone. Yeah. I have to guess that they um, in both the case of your parents, if if they wanted you to oh this isn't a good idea, Nick, don't do this or someone wanted someone to do something a different way. I, th- I feel like maybe in those cases those people might think they have a bigger picture view and they can see that this is not <clears throat> the best way to 
to get what they think that person is trying yeah. to get to. Which, so there's a lot of things there that might be incorrect, right? Yeah. They, they may not in, indeed have a better big picture view than the person and they may not understand what that person is actually always. trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, because, you know, one of the things that is like one of my biggest pet peeves is unsolicited advice. <laughs> get the fuck away. <laughs> I mean, I didn't ask for your... So what I've actually been saying now... <laughs> Does anyone like... <laughs> don't you get unsolicited advice? Oh, surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What but, I've been but that's s- what I mean. I feel like most of the time it would not be welcome, right? I guess. Oh, I don't know. Maybe if I'm a complete amateur at something in that case. Yeah. Right. And someone just comes over and goes, Although Mate. like you want to... Yeah, you want to vet that person first. Anyway, go on. I heard you were going to say... Yeah. What I've been saying to those people now, because like I think in the past it's like you want to be maybe agreeable and I don't know, you don't want to be confrontational, so you just let them do it. But what I've been saying now is, if I wanted your advice, I would have asked for it because no, that's just true. No, thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't say thank you because you know, yeah, I'm yeah. not thankful. Yeah, uh, it's that's dishonest. One of the things that I discovered <laughs> while I, last year when I was in America is that agreeable people are dishonest because they say yes when they mean no you know how many how many people are living lives where they say yes to things when they mean no and then you might say well you know i'm doing it i you know it's selfish (laughs) you know i of course there are certain things i want to say no to but i say yes anyway um and so what does that mean let's just do an analysis of that you know if you're you know doing something for a person let's say it's a friend you say yes to a certain thing you want to say no but you say yes anyway because you feel obligated or because you you feel that's a good point let them down or upset them or yeah obligated is a good word we should talk about that later but um let's okay so let's say that you do something out of obligate a sense of obligation well now now you're living it you've got a dishonest relationship with that person that person does not have a relationship with you. That person has a relationship with the person that you think you need to be in order to keep that relationship alive. Mm. That's not who you are. Yeah. And that's, that's not a foundation for a friendship. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's the tricky thing is because these things can be so subtle, right? Exactly. And uh, insidious. Mm, and so it takes discipline and yeah. self awareness to. Yes. And also like uh, tactfulness, you know, because you could yeah. you could reject something in a yeah. in a really rude way, which obviously is not a becoming way. Yep. Uh, anyway, so yep. Um, yeah, no. So it just means that you're having a dishonest relationship with that person. So then you have to think, you know, what happens if I um, bring my honest self to the table? And don't do things that I think that I need to do out of a sense of obligation. Why would you want to be around somebody that obligates you into being inauthentic? Mm. Why? why? What, are you, what are you getting out of that relationship that is so important that, you, that you're happy to live an inauthentic, dishonest life? I think for some people, they may think that person is where I want to be so I'm I need to change myself and maybe do things that I don't naturally think I should do or want to do to okay. get there maybe 
What do you think? You know, there's, well, there's a difference between doing things out of, like, sometimes you don't want to go to the gym, but you do it anyway. Mm-hmm. That's different to doing saying something out of a sense of obligation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess we need to be very clear on what we mean by obligation. Because I, I would say I feel obligated to train because I want to achieve these things. But that's that's not what we mean by yeah I, I suppose more in the sense of when it contradicts your values uh deeply right oh, yeah i would say externally imposed mm. when it becomes from you i don't feel obligated to do things that i've said that i was going to do i feel that i need discipline that's different to me than obligation okay yeah yeah that's true yeah i guess obligation is like uh you're going to let somebody else down. Mm. Or it's just you have to do the thing no matter what. Um, yeah. Especially without your own uh, natural... Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I should look it up on Google. Doesn't come, doesn't come from within. Yeah. It's imposed from without. Yeah. Yeah, actually, maybe goes to um, a couple of sentences before the quote that I like talked about with Becca. Um, he says, he asks the question, "What is one's true talent? His gift? His authentic vocation? In what way is one truly unique? And how can he express this uniqueness? Give it form. Dedicate it to something beyond himself, to enrich both himself and mankind." with the peculiar quality of his talent. So what do you have to do in order to figure out what's something that is, you know, inside that is your inner secret, you know, that's what he calls it, or is it being imposed on the outside? And so he says, you know, there are people who try to cultivate their interiority, base their pride on something deeper and inner, create a distance between themselves and the average person. And there's a special name for somebody who cultivates his interiority. Introvert. (laughs) (laughs) He enjoys solitude, withdraws periodically to reflect. Yeah. So, yeah, I I feel... um, that's it it's not like extroverts can't reflect no yeah Kierkegaard was using the word introvert in a certain way yeah (laughs) it's not the introvert we know I mean he was talking in the 19th century so oh damn it's not it's not the introversion we know now um and actually so not to keep quoting things but um there is another quote from Mihai Csikszentmihalyi who's the guy who came up with flow the psych, you know, optical, optimal psychological experience of flow. Um, and he says, to overcome the anxieties and depressions of contemporary life, individuals must become independent of the social environment to, de- to the degree that they no longer respond exclusively in terms of its rewards and punishments. To achieve such autonomy, A person has to learn to provide rewards to herself. She has to develop the ability to find enjoyment and purpose regardless of external outcomes. So I think an important um, word here in that quote is exclusively. You're no longer exclusively responding to your social environment and to external cues. 
And he says that in order to do that, you have to come up with internal re um, rewards. So I would say that when you feel obligated, you're living in accordance with your social environment, externally imposed demands and punishments. Mm. And to break free of that, one has to reward themselves for, for instance, going to the gym or whatever it might be that's in alignment with what you think is, you know, a good life. Um, and, you know, the reward might just be you feel good about yourself, self-esteem, you know. You're moving closer to the person that you feel that you should be. Yeah. What are some other rewards people could have? Yeah, it's funny, you know, because I feel that you and I don't necessarily set up reward systems for us. We just go, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, well, yeah, that, to me, probably the reward is re I respect myself. That's, I respect, that's yeah, exactly. so important and huge. Yeah. Yeah. So. Can you say again the... Um, <clears throat> that quote about the internal artist um is that what it was called from that book internal um, you quoted a, a book before about um cultivating your like your, your interiority soul. yeah perhaps to, or to get the um to bring the artist out of yourself oh you mean um yeah the artist's way i didn't That's i don't have a quote i don't know what the quote is from her but yeah no there was a there is i guess uh, julia cameron's belief is that internal to all of us we actually have kind of a spirit she, you know she's quite spiritual about these things but there is something within us that's divine that is the muse yeah that's creative that needs to be unleashed yeah i, I really that's, that's beautiful and i yeah i feel that um, yeah it makes me think that yes everyone has that sadly some people probably go through their life not realizing what that thing is most people yeah yeah not some yeah, and it's hard to find as well, I would say. It's not obvious for most people. Um, exactly. Yeah. But I, I think you can feel it, though, when you're doing something. Yep. Because um, I would say you probably feel it in your research and, yep. and that, which is interesting because most people wouldn't associate that with art, but I totally see how that can be art. Yeah. Um, and, and same for me with, you know, well, I guess I've gone from, like, making really basic training videos to like higher production quality videos, um, to telling a bit of a story in those videos, and now making a film. Yeah. And and I'm kind of enjoying each one more and more. You know? Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I feel like I'm sort of following a path to to somewhere. I don't really know where that is. Yeah. But it feels like it's following that the natural feeling of yeah. You know. Yeah. So and I'm sure probably a lot of people have that. Um, hopefully that journey. But you have to listen to it, right? You can't. And it's, 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 it's maybe it's, it's not um, super loud and clear. You, you got to listen to the subtleties. Yeah. It's really, it's really yeah. tough yeah. to cultivate your interior life. Yeah. This is what we're talking about here is very difficult work. Yeah. Um, Naval talks about how you, it's, it's almost the, like there are social rewards and what we're talking about is almost anti-social rewards. Because mm, yeah. when you become something different to what people want you to be, they go, hey, man, you're not coming out anymore. How about just one drink? You know, oh, are you too good for us now? Oh, mates, big boy. Yeah. <laughs> one of my friends is popping in your mind as you're saying it. But it's funny because he, he would say it all in like a, a funny way. Okay. You know what I mean? So, but <laughs> yeah. So it's almost antisocial rewards of like, look what happened. You know, I... In my case, you know, I, I've surrounded myself with people that are supportive, but, you know, it could have been, 
you know, I can imagine that taking six months off to be quiet would have um, upset some people, you know, if I had friend, made friends with the wrong people. So what we're talking about here is very, very difficult. In fact, in just the page after that quote that are in um, The Denial of Death, he says, um, it would be so nice to be the self he wants to be, but it might upset his world completely. You know, like what we're talking about here is um, revolutionary from a personal perspective. And, um, and it can shun, the, you know, the, the people, it can shun certain people. I guess what I feel is that, you know, those people don't deserve to be in my life anyway. Mm. Well, if that even, that almost sounds like arrogant, negative. I would say like they're not the right fit or sure. it's better for everyone yeah, to just, in that case, not be um, yeah, yes. in each other's life, right? Right. Yeah. So, but yeah, I see what you're saying. He says um, that with the, uh, uh, it, it sounded like he, he there was a change he thought he could make, but he's not going to make it, or he's not sure. Is that the case? Um, yeah, it's, I don't know if it's unsure, or, or it's just like, you can see the chasm between um, who you are now and listening to this internal voice and crossing that chasm would mean that you would upset your world the people around you think you're a thing they think you're something mm. and um, it would be it's so difficult for us to think about letting go of those kinds of relations especially if it's like your mom <laughs> it often is you know it often is the people that are most close to you and it's interesting how... Are you saying letting go of them or doing things you think they will not like? Well, I think the, the thing here is that there's a risk that they might want to let you go yeah. or that you might have to let them go. The, the point is not that it will upset your world. The point is that it could upset your world. Mm. And mm. that's a risk that one needs yeah. to take. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. In the sense of just hearing your mum letting you go or you letting her go. That almost feels like, well, you just can't do that because there's this social exactly. norm of the yep. closeness. But then I also wonder if, because um, I like to think with my parents, they're very uh, accepting and I, th I feel like whatever I tell them I think is a good idea, I'm going to do this, that's supported, which is a, a yeah. beautiful thing. Yeah, um, that's cute. <laughs> I wonder if, uh, if you didn't have that, but you were thoughtful enough and and clear enough with your communication as to like the deep levels of why you're doing this or that whilst there might be like the shorter term turmoil i wonder if long term it will reconcile you know um, maybe i don't know i guess it's you know again it's like very person specific yeah, yeah. um I'm an idealist, so I like to think that, uh, <laughs> that eventually it would go yeah, back to the positive. parent may be really upset for a while, but then maybe they think about it deeper and I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. Um, it's different for everyone, of course. I think so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so then I guess the question is, you know, in those circumstances where you do think it would, it would uh, cause a rift between you and your parents, you know, what do you do? I think that that's actually an incredibly difficult situation to be in. Mm. Because, um, you know, one, uh, one um, solution to that is to simply pretend around your parents to be who they think you are. 
you know, so you have to live a double life. Yeah. I think that's actually very common mm. to, to, to live a double life um, and to kind of change your personality. <sighs> sounds, sounds exhausting. Yeah. And then the other thing to do is, I guess there's three options that. Another option is don't do what you feel you really should because that point. way your parents yeah. will be happy. And then yeah. the, the third way is to do the thing and take the risk. Um, yeah, it's so funny though, because yes, that's very complex and difficult, but I feel like it's really obvious what the right thing to do is. Do you know what I mean? Like, which is, you just have to be, do what seems to be right uh, to yourself. Because otherwise you're being inauthentic to your parents again, and yeah, it's like living a um, yeah, it's not the truth. I guess if that's not your value, but I feel like everything is better with ultimately, even if you can't understand it at the time. It seems like yeah. What do you think? Well, I I mean I could say the answer is obvious. Don't bring dishonor to the family. Right. Mm. I don't, not if that's <laughs> this is a taste thing yeah. like I think at the end of the day by us reasoning through things we're never going to get anywhere in terms of you know there's a preference about how one might want to live their life and I, I think um, you know maybe what we're trying to do here is to simply give a, a, a different perspective that is uh, somehow controversial mm. but just to yeah, say that it's very difficult work. It's it's non-trivial to figure out how you feel about something. Yeah. Non-trivial. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that's difficult. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it takes a lot of work to disentangle your true inherent um, feelings from what you're told how you should feel. That's difficult work. And then um, once you've done that and you have a strong sense and you've, you're reconnected to that quiet inner voice, the next part from there is, do you want to live in accordance with that voice? I, I can now hear it. I've cultivated an, a connection to my inner self. I understand what I want to do um, from a self-driven perspective. Now am I going to do that? I think in my case, I don't have a choice. Um, it's so loud. That voice, now that I've cultivated a connection to that voice, it's so difficult for me to act contrary to it. I find it very, very difficult. So I, I don't have a choice. Um, I just have to. But I can also see the side of like, um, you know, I, you know, I, maybe I want to be a good mother and there are lots of things that I don't want to do in order to be a good mother to support the family. And I think that it's honorable to do what's best for the family rather than what I think is best for myself. I can see that as a way of living. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's like I read this book about talking about the regrets that people have when they're on their deathbed and one of the... Um, one of the most um, striking stories to me was about a guy, um, he, uh, he did everything that he could for his family. 
Um, he was a very dedicated company man, um, never really showed any signs of weakness. Always, if he ha was struggling in some way, would hide that because he thought that that's what a man did. And so he, now he's on his deathbed and he's kind of confessing all of this to a stranger. He's confessing this to his palliative care specialist. And she, her advice to him was, you, you, need to tell, you need to tell your kids and your family about how you really feel. And he just said, no, like he doesn't want to put them through that. Um, he wants to hide his pain and his struggle from them to protect them from it. So it made me feel um, like on the one hand, it's like, that's honorable. And actually when I told that um, story to one of my friends, he said, that's correct. That's what you should do. But um, from the perspective of the author, the palliative care specialist, she was like, she felt this sadness that, you know, her family, this guy's family never knew who he was. Never, never saw the true him, even until his death. And he died, in a sense, alone, tr truly alone. Because um, he, he had to take on that pain and that struggle by himself. So, you know, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make with that story is there's, I don't think there's any way to judge whether or not what he did was correct. He did what he did. He had his beliefs. They led to a certain action and a certain life. And there may be some degree of self-sacrifice that was involved in that, but that was his choice. Um. Yeah, I feel like it comes down to distilling, as, as we both, I think, agree, like simplicity is, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's great. it has so many benefits. Um, and uh, I think for me, like with these really difficult things to know, um, trying to keep it simple and distilled to like say if you value authenticity well even like um, what the, uh, the Stoics have four key values is that, is that right? You mean the four cardinal virtues? Yeah. I actually it's interesting because that is now associated with Stoicism but I haven't found that in the ancient writings I think it's more of a modern thing but okay. anyway so where, what would you call it then just general f philosophic values? Sure, no, but they have become associated with modern Stoicism, yeah. and I'm actually a big fan of them, so yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Cool. Well, no, you'll, you'll definitely um, explain them better to me, and we'll, I'll ask you to do that in a second. But I think um, these are helpful in the sense that yes. it's four, so four is not very many. They're well considered, yes. um, and, and you could just, it's probably a good exercise to do as a person to think about these values and perhaps some others and think which ones deeply do you think matter and then based on that you can it's much easier to then say okay well based on these four values in this case of this man is is he more aligned with those values oh, by, by talking to his kids about these problems or by shielding them i see and i think that at least for me that makes things a lot easier right um yes uh yeah because it's like a it's a, a world with infinite possibilities. You can do infinite number of things, but I feel like this is the most considered I could be at least about, you know, it helps me make these decisions. Yeah. He might've had a simple precept, which mm. was family comes first. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's what led to those actions. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, my attraction to the four cardinal virtues, um, it was simplicity as well. And, 
Maybe I should just say what they are, yeah, uh, just so yeah. that we're not. Sorry, I'm, I'm not dancing around. I just want. I know Nick will do a much, <laughs> much better job of explaining it. So go ahead. So, but I'll just say what they are. I don't know if we want to go into it too much. I mean, we can, whatever. But so they're wisdom, uh, courage, justice, and temperance or discipline. And the reason that I was attracted to them is because, as Lockie said, they're they're simple. And what I found is that. Um, you know, I went personally, I went through a long period of exploration of trying to figure out, quote unquote, the answers to life. And that led me on a journey of, you know, studying philosophy, Western and Eastern philosophy, psychology, a bunch of things. And what I found at the end of that was like, I was just more confused. I mean, I definitely had a richer perspective, but, you know, it's interesting, man. When I went to study philosophy, I found that a lot of people became nihilists. Like they had just had... Um, it was so difficult for them to figure out how to act and what to do. You know, when you're questioning everything, including society and being like, well, I don't want to be a capitalist. So now am I, how am I going to get a job? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's so difficult to live in a world in which you're, you know, questioning everything. I'm not saying that you shouldn't question, but yeah. it, I didn't see that it may, after f- studying philosophy, people became happier or more certain. In fact, I found the total opposite. Yeah. And I found that a lot of friends went into a kind of like plunged plunged into a kind of a deep depression. And these were philosophy majors. Yeah, at, yeah, yeah. At uni, right? yeah, yeah. Some of them were like, fuck this, I'm getting out of philosophy. And I know at least one friend went into finance, which <laughs> I don't know if that was the best. But um, I remember, you, I think you said one of your philosophy lecturers, didn't they say to you like, yeah, they kind of warned you in a way? All of them. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> some, like, okay, so let me just go into that story briefly, which is that, you know, before I studied philosophy, um, I, you know, I was sci- I was a professional scientist. I had a good career as a scientist, and then I decided like this is really interesting, so I want to delve into it more. So interesting I, and important, right? Interesting and that's a very good point because yeah. I felt like what am I doing all these experiments for when I don't know how to live? Let me just read the best, imbibe the best thoughts from the best thinkers on how to live. That was my goal with uh, studying philosophy. So even then you were uh, aware of intentionality in that sense, you were trying to make sure that mm-hmm. you were directing your energy in the most considered way. Yeah, no, exactly. It was like, how do I be most, yeah, the most considered? Yeah. And, you know, and that's what, you know, uh, Socrates is supposed to have said, the unexamined life is not worth living. So that's why I went to study. So I'll say two things about that. First of all, as you said, everybody discouraged me. So I, <laughs> I, I went, to Sydney University because it's a great place to study philosophy and asked these philosophy professors if I should study philosophy and unanimously <laughs> they were like what are you doing <laughs> you got a great career definitely don't study philosophy and all of them talked about how um, it's, it's not really you know it's not gonna be able to get a job um, but also they talked about how there was such a malaise around, you know, these people are interested in the deepest questions um, of existence, time, identity, ethics, beauty, um, the structure of reality. (laughs) And they talked about how, you know, competencies and graduate outcomes had like seeped into philosophy. And now they have to, now you have to do teamwork in philosophy and give group presentations just because you know that's a good graduate out attribute but it's like that has nothing to do with i i don't think wittgenstein or any of the great philosophers were doing a lot of teamwork um so that was the first thing and then the second thing is that um 
unfortunately what i had found in studying philosophy is that you know there has been a turn to what is maybe these days called analytic philosophy interests in things like you know formal logic in things like rationality truth the philosophy of language the philosophy of meaning those kinds of things and for me i was much more interested in just i want to know how to live the fuck like, fuck are we like applicable yeah philosophy. like i i that's why I was so attracted in the end to the Stoics because they're very practical of yeah. like, this is how to live. Um, and one day we'll talk about, um, there's a book called A Guide to the Great Life. We'll talk about that at some point because he talks about the difference between philosophers and philosophizers. Philosophers are people that, you know, like Aristotle, Plato, like they want to know how to live. Yeah. So that's why they philosophize. And then act upon Then act, you know, they live in accordance with it. And yeah. philosophizers are people that just talk about philosophy, yeah. which unfortunately is, is what happens when you go to, like when you study philosophy. And I got good at writing essays, but I didn't necessarily come out with like a new perspective on life. And an example of this, man, I don't know if we've talked about this, but like in my first philosophy class, um, we were talking about what Aristotle calls the golden mean. So he says that, you know, you know on the one extreme, you might be a coward, and on the other extreme, you might be very brash and just go into a situation without thinking. The golden mean between those is courage and bravery, and that's the virtue. So he does this analysis of like going between two extremes and then being like the golden mean, you know, that's... And so I basically, in the break, um, it was a two hour lecture, so in between there was a 10 minute break, and I basically asked in the break to the lecturer, you know, why are we aiming for the golden mean? You know, this seems like, a, it seems like, it is just a consequence of the Greek obsession with geometry. And now we're bringing that into ethics. I mean, so do you mean like the term golden mean? The, the term golden mean, but also like that we're using geometry as we're using the middle point between two extremes to figure out what the virtue is. Yeah. And I said, you know, what, you know, why is that? I mean, you know, isn't it possible that, you know, that actually the virtue is maybe on one end, you know, you know, is not just in the middle. And, is this a proof? Like, why do, why do they think that you can use geometric proofs and ethics? And the lecturer said, that's a very good critique of Aristotelian virtue ethics. You should write about that. <laughs> and I was like, you motherfucker, I want to know how to live. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to write about it. That is freaking hilarious. So that, oh ca that characterizes what happened. <laughs> that now, I will say that it was a hell of a fun time it was one of the most fun times of my life studying philosophy and pure math it was i would definitely not trade it in for anything one of the best times in my life but what i found is that most of my philosophical education happened outside of the classroom um, most of the most important books that i read in philosophy were not in not studying philosophy um, as a philosophy major uh, we didn't study any stoicism um, which was a shame. Interesting. Yeah, it it's, like it's actually not like in academic philosophy, Stoicism is is not that popular. So um, when you say you mean you didn't study Seneca? Uh, nope. Marcus Aurelius. Nope. Wow. Well, he, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius weren't even mentioned. Jeez. <laughs> no. So um, I I had for wow, a for a look. I, I mean, I, I am ignorant. I haven't studied like a lot of. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of philosophy I haven't been aware of. So maybe. I'm not the best, but that seems like a really big miss. Like, I think so yeah, too. And yeah. I, for a little while, thought about writing a PhD in philosophy. Uh, and it would have been on um, Stoicism. Um, and the reason that I didn't end up writing that PhD is because I thought about my philosophical heroes. And they would have been like, what the fuck are you doing? I told you what to do. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's very simple, man. Yeah. I gave you the rules. Go and be useful. Yeah. Um, it could be useful if you do a PhD that enlightens people. Maybe, but I, I thought, no, it's true, it's true. And I actually had thought about that and maybe like bringing it out to the masses. But I feel that there are people that are doing that. You know, Ryan Holiday, Tim Ferriss. There are mm. lots of people yeah. that are bringing stoicism to the masses. And I felt that working on image-guided radiotherapy... <laughs> potentially more useful um so it was a very interesting it was an interesting journey for me but um what i discovered is that it is while it is very beautiful to have all these theories about you know how to live and how to view the world in the end what i discovered is that you know i don't necessarily think that having kind of a richer view on life actually makes you any more happy or any more um useful and you know as an example of this you know my grandfather who is a devout christian is you know one of the happiest and nicest people that i know and i look up to him a lot and he you know has devoted himself to one book and in fact this year i believe that he's devoting himself to just the psalms and just trying to understand them and he's such a nice person and very happy very healthy you know um and it made me realize that potentially like zeroing in on something and just being like, this is gonna, this is good enough and I'm now gonna live in accordance with it is better than, you know, never having a principle or never having something that you can kind of depend on. Just choosing, okay, the four cardinal virtues, bang, wisdom, courage, justice, discipline. Those are good enough. Yeah. And just living, and like, and my my thought was, if I can even get close to embodying those things, it'll better it'd be better than where I am now. And it would what a great life it would be if I if I'm able to embody those things in some way. Um, so almost like an eighty twenty analysis of being like that's good enough. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, you get overwhelmed with, and then you're having action, right? Yeah, we talked about this in the last podcast yeah. about how for for me at least for me it's like if I get too many inputs, it's an impediment to action. Yeah sure for anyone man like yeah you can overanalyze anything yeah if you maybe it's good you're trying to take in more um you know consider more options and taking more information but at a certain point it's overwhelming and way too time consuming and ultimately um stifling so yeah yeah that's that's cool and and also you can choose these four cardinal virtues to live by and then upon reflection make a change that's also, totally you know it's not like with you know with everything you can always change but i would say that's most more likely to be a good way to go about it than to maybe spend 20 years trying to figure out what these things are for, in the first place you know although at the same time man it's like i you know one of the things that i discovered in studying philosophy is that it's just really fun to try and figure out what the answers are yeah and to basically like enjoy the process of thinking about what it's like to live a good life and so and then i was like oh maybe that is the point of it all is to just ask questions and to keep experimenting and um yeah to enjoy the process of um figuring out what it is and i also think that it kind of changes as you get older and the world changes around you you're going to have different and for instance one of the things that i discovered after studying after getting my degree in philosophy is that you know, we call it a philosophy degree, but really it's it's a degree in, in the history of Western philosophy. So I felt that there was a huge gap in my knowledge of not taking Eastern philosophy more seriously. And once I had done that and read some Taoism, 
read some read some buddhism and taken the, and the cool thing about buddhism is that it actually tells you what to do like there's an is what's called an eightfold noble path and it tells you these are the things that you want to that you should go for so i found that actually in eastern philosophy was more practical but um for me having this juxtaposition of east and west and for a long time i had portraits of socrates and the buddha you know side by side and being like you know what can we learn at the synthesis of each of these um and yeah that having that kind of balanced perspective of um and as you know i i was gonna at one point get these tattooed on my arm of are you, like are you still thinking about that uh, yeah but but the thing about the tattoos is that you know often people have regrets about tattoos yeah. that's first of all yeah. second of all i i think that there is an arrogance in saying this is how like i just think that my i'm likely to change my mind and i think that there's a certain arrogance in being like this is the answer yeah um yeah. i think it's so important to have always have that humbleness or whatever it is to change your mind yeah and and not make yourself feel completely obligated unless yeah, it's, it's marriage also, then you're committed no. yes <laughs> sometimes not um but i also think it's dogmatic you know to have something on your, you're like this is how i'm going to live now it's dogmatic also yeah, yeah. another thing is like it's uh, you know getting a tattoo is is somewhat of a display you mean you can get a tattoo just for you but you are then exhibiting it to the world yeah. and you know i'm not interested in doing that it's you know um so are you still it's an idea or you're it's, like, a, it's an idea but i i wouldn't say that i'm uh fi- you know finally not going to do that yeah. but anyway it was it was imp- it was imp- these things were important enough for me that i thought i should get them tattooed and I, I have a cousin who actually did a very similar thing of like he got his morning routine tattooed on his arm of like basically like this is you know these are the things that i need that's cool it is very cool um but so i was going to have on the left hand side the four cardinal virtues and on the right hand side uh, something that breaks that something antithetical to that uh, for a long time i was going to have a surprised emoji face as you know yeah. for a little while i was going to have the symbol for om um what about the um, in sanskrit dinosaur with hearts in its eyes yeah you see like yeah that would be pretty something cute. ridiculous <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, because the you Syrian. Just get that anyway. <laughs> I could. Yeah, I thought about getting a temporary tattoo or something okay. just to see how it's like. But um, yeah. yeah. So I, for me, like that conflict of like, or you know, what's at the synthesis between seriousness and silliness? What's at the, what's at the, what's at the um, what, what is the synthesis of Eastern philosophy and West and Western philosophy? Terry Crews. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Terry Crews. Yeah. Ridiculous. What is it? Seneca, Buddha, and Terry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. So yeah. No. And I, I actually like the idea of living, what's called like maybe like less of a theory laden life. Um, I. I. It's interesting to me now that like not having anything. I, there's something in that of like. Um, what's here now just observe what's here now uh, you know like not not putting a theory on it not confining it just observing what's here now and then listening to the inner voice within without uh, judgment and without thinking that you have the answer there is something in that um, so that's what I'm more doing now nice. that's cool as Nick is saying that his face is lighting up <laughs> it's really cool yeah it's awesome um one thought i had was um 
Well, firstly, what did you say to that philosophy lecturer when they gave you that? I didn't say anything. I was like, I was so disappointed. I was like, ugh, So you just walked off? Yeah, Yeah, I did. I walked off. That's funny. And I I also think the fact that you were asking that question, I'm sure you did really well in that class, right? Yeah. You got good marks? Yeah. Going back to what we spoke about in the last podcast about curiosity, because you were curious about the subject matter and you weren't just learning it because you needed to learn it for the to, to pass that that way you got a much deeper understanding of everything um, and it leads to you questioning like that which would have been great if they actually um, <laughs> yeah what um, engaged with that and actually um, what like um, analyzed it with you also on that um, have you had any thoughts since? Because I really like the golden mean. I think that, that's helped me a lot in the sense where I'm a pretty extreme person. So yeah, I if I know I like I want to do that thing, I'll, I I get excited by like, well, I'm going to do it to like a hundred percent. Yeah, and then I've realized um, with some things, uh, probably a lot of things. Like I think the um, the midpoint or yeah, that the perfect medium is is really often a virtue yeah and i also like because you know i've had all these thoughts it's a bit chaotic as i'm saying this but i was even thinking like um like nazism and and hitler and that um uh yeah like everyone should read the rise and fall of the third reich it's funny i said that i haven't read it in full but um i found that um it's really interesting to see how that arose and i feel like it, it stemmed from uh, having a particular value, being very strongly leaning that that way, so, um, and then that going way too far, you know, um, mm. and, and like and like a more example of my life would be say I I really want to get stronger and strength training is important and I'm gonna um, you know go crazy with that and have really intense workouts. Of course, you could just go too much and injure yourself. Um, or you could go so hard and, and make it so important that you neglect so much, uh, so many other parts of your life, which in turn actually makes you um, not as strong. Maybe like you know what I mean? Like there's certain things you need obviously to live. Um, yeah. So um, anyway, um, I, I thought as even though I love extremes and I, I still want to keep doing that, um, the golden mean was helpful for me to sometimes maybe have more perspective oh no like that's that's a bit much let's let's bring that in a little bit um yeah so what you don't um wait what are your thoughts on that now i guess i'm undecided i um it's funny because like i at one at some point i um we should talk about balance and moderation yeah yeah because um i don't think i'm a fan (laughs) very interesting that'd be great i don't think i'm a fan um I think maybe what I'm more aiming for is, is harmony, um, where you add you, you add things together and then you get a synergistic effect, rather than this idea that you compromise by subtracting. Not not a fan of that. I mean, again, it's just like this is there's certain ways of living, but you know the people that I look to up up to are, are quite extreme and they're unapologetic about being extreme. One of the things that I liked in in reading Aristotle was this idea that like. If you're on one end of the spectrum and you aim for the other end, you're going to miss. So, for instance, if you're a coward and you aim to be brave, you're going to do what a coward thinks is bravery. (laughs) So, 
and it, which is still cowardly it's still it still misses it's not the golden mean yet yeah. it still misses the mark and so it's somehow inauthentic as well perhaps i don't know why well, don't but that's don't a know. noble thing to do if you were a coward trying to not be so it might be noble yeah, yeah. but uh, what i what i discovered is that actually like sometimes that's why it's good to overshoot because mm. if you're on one extreme and you undershoot then you might True. not even know it True. And you might not, you might never get to bravery if you're a coward. Yeah. And so it's interesting to sometimes, if you're a coward, act brashly and see what happens, because yeah. that might actually be further towards bravery. Um, Love it. So I actually like going the other extreme and seeing what it's like. Yeah. As you know, I've been incredibly introverted and incredibly extroverted. Yeah. And so now that I understand what it's like to be somebody that goes in a cave for eight months and also can go up to strangers on the bus and talk to them about their lives. Yeah. Now I understand what the full spectrum of introversion and extroversion actually looks like. Yeah. Um, Just a um, side note that Nick uh, went through a period where he tried to have deep conversations with complete strangers. I did. And every day, pretty much? Was yeah, it was one, a At least goal. once a day. Yeah. Yeah. Epic. So cool. We can talk about that later. Sure. Continue but so, so yeah, one of the things that I loved in reading Aristotle was like this idea that like for me, he doesn't explicitly say this, but for me, it's like in order to get an understanding of what the extremes are, you have to go to both of them and then you can make a um, you can make an educated uh, decision as to where you'd like to fit in the spectrum. That's Again, I don't actually think that the golden mean it's like what what comes to mind is like you know on your sound system you kind of have these equalizers that you can you know put maybe sometimes you want a bit more bass you know there's nothing wrong with wanting more bass and so i don't think that the equalizers need to be in the middle every time yeah yeah, yeah. and i think i agree with that it, it depending on the situation what it is you might exactly modify it yeah so i've come to think that first of all it's kind of person specific so i don't i don't believe in the golden mean i think that it's an interesting way to think about what the virtue is between two extremes. I think if you want to be extreme, be extreme, that's your prerogative. And also it's going to be person specific, but then even within a person, it's going to be time specific. Mm. I was much more extroverted as a kid than I am now. Yeah. And even situation specific. Situ exactly. Yeah, um, yeah so one other thing that we should talk about at some point is like, so Harvard psychologist called, I think his name is Brian Little, talks about how authenticity is a myth um, that there's this idea that you're one person and that you need to be, if you're not that one person in all contexts, then you're being inauthentic. But that actually just flies in the face of the fact that humans are incredibly rich, diverse, adaptable. It makes sense that you would act differently at a funeral than you would at a party. It makes sense that you would dif act uh, differently around your grandmother than you would around a first date or a first date around the 50th date. It makes sense that um, you would express who you are in different contexts in different ways. So that has allowed me to let go of the idea that you need to be one thing. I think it's very constricting to be like, this is who I am and I'm just going to be that all the time. So when I talk about authenticity, what I'm more talking about is listening to that kind of internal voice of what it says in the circumstances. So the, the authenticity is listening to your interior life. It has nothing to do with what, how, that is, how that manifests or less to do with that, you know. So That's so cool. Because it's also then, in a sense, someone else's authenticity is, in, is a mystery. You can't really know. Exactly. Even your own. It's a mystery yeah. to you. Yeah, exactly. But the cool thing is I, um, you can, I thought you can sense it when someone's authentic. You can. And I, I think so. deeply 
enjoy it and and like it every yeah yeah people i think that people can tell yeah Yeah. when you're not being authentic and i think that yeah it's it's a huge turn off um so yeah with aristotle it's like subconscious right isn't yeah you just can just sense yeah. It's it's so important to yeah. like yeah because we're social creatures and it so it's very important to figure out where this fucking person's coming from you yeah. know. <laughs> one of the things that I didn't and you know one day we'll, we'll talk about Aristotle and I'll bring some quotes. That'd be awesome. I look forward to that. Um, yeah. From his book, but um, one of the things that I didn't like is he kind of just lists these virtues out as like these are the these are the virtues and I'm like well where did you get these fucking virtues like. <laughs> And one of the things that was really cool was <laughs> one of the things that was really cool for me is that when I came to study philosophy was at the time of the rise of positive psychology. And so it was really cool to see that some of these claims that had been made in ancient times were actually being tested in like, like scientifically. It was so cool. Um, and I just think I just felt that I was living in this fucking wonderful golden period of like, let's see what, you know, because for instance, in Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's book Flow, he actually begins by negating Aristotle, which is so cool because I had read the Nicomachean Ethics and then I read Flow. And these books are separated by two millennia and it's like, it's so cool to see how things have developed since then. So, you know, there, there are downsides to um, Aristotle's conception of virtue ethics. Um, is the Nicomachean Ethics in The Prince or is it? The Prince. Oh, no, I'm thinking Machiavelli. That's Machiavelli. Yeah, 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 yeah. What are the? Can you enlighten me briefly on that? On the Nicomachean Ethics. Yeah. So um, he's supposed to have written a book for his um, son Nicomachus, and to, mm. to how to live. Mm. So it is gorgeous, man. Because based, like based on Aristotle or completely. N- uh, so the Nicomachean Ethics was written by Aristotle. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting confused. Yeah. It's not Nicolai Machiavelli. Yeah. Yeah. That's many, many years later. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, the Nicomachean Ethics was written for Nicomachus, his son. Aristotle's son. Aristotle's son. Okay. And um, we're supposed to have been. And it's like a book on how to live, which is like so fucking cool because it's like you feel like you're Aristotle's son when you're reading it. Yeah. Kind of Unf- like Seneca's letters to Lucilius. Yeah, right? that, exactly. Like these yeah. personal accounts, like Marcus Aurelius, when he wrote the meditations, yeah. they were his personal journal. He would be horrified if he knew that yeah. you know so many people know his personal diary. Yeah. So like, isn't that cool though? Because that, that almost goes back to the anonymity thing. Absolutely. He'd be horrified, but everyone loves him. Everybody loves him because he's so authentic. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny, hey. Like letting people in, I'd say is probably often a really actually. Yeah, your fears are. I don't know why they're there. It's natural, but there's no need. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, no, so it's a beautiful... It, that that book really changed my life, The Nicomachean Ethics. Yeah, unfortunately, man, so um, we have lo- we lost most of Aristotle's writings. So it was a huge shame. It's crazy to think that. And so what we have access to are his lecture notes. And those... Just imagine we had the book. I mean, lecture notes compared to a, 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 an, like a, an intentionally written book. It's very different. So... What we're getting are just is just the scratch, scratching the surface of what he had to say, and it's, it's super amazing. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we'll go into we'll go into the Nicomachean Ethics one day more. Am I right in saying that? Say, um, I'm happy to seem ignorant because a lot of these things I've read through, but I'm I'm a bit fuzzy on at the moment. Um, is that it's a relatively short? Is it? Yeah, I mean, two hundred 
200 pages, okay, something like okay, that. Okay, yeah, oh, it's bigger than I was thinking. Um, yeah. Anyway, cool. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful. I feel when I when I read Aristotle and I understand it, he, he's very understandable. Aristotle is supposed to have said, "Think like a philosopher, but speak like the common person," and it's so I found it such a thrill to read Aristotle because it's incredibly accessible again it's from 2000 years ago um, it's to his son uh, it's very direct of like this is how you should live like he's answering these what in my opinion important questions he's clearly a genius and um, and I found that as I was imbibing Aristotle I started to begin to think like him it's so funny but um, that, you know, that just happens sometimes, you know, when you read somebody, you start to think like that person. So it was very, yeah, it was very important for me to read him. Yeah. What did his son end up doing? I don't know. Life? Yeah. You know, so there was actually an interesting lineage. That's a great foundation. There you go, mate. No, but the Enjoy. thing is like, sometimes, you know, the, the, you know, the sons of great men don't always become great men. Well, and, but even <clears> he could have been a great man and we, we don't need to know about that, right? Like, sure. A lot, there are oh, a lot of, I understand what you're saying. A lot of great people that... Uh, yeah, historically, they're not, not yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. So, I mean, just to say, there is a lineage here, which is really cool. That some, you know, most people know, but some people might not know, which is that. Um, so, Socrates was the teacher of Plato. Plato was the teacher of Aristotle, and Aristotle was the teacher of um, Alexander the Great. So, there's this incredible lineage of just some of the most important people in history. Forget about the history of Greece. That's, that's very impressive. In, in world history, that there, it's, a, it's, it's a, four generations of teachers starting from Socrates. And it's fascinating that that all stems from a way of thinking. Right? Exactly, you exactly. Know? Yeah, that's, that's huge. Yeah. That's, that is the value in learning these things or reading them. Man, you know what's funny? I, I was thinking the subject today is death, is it not? Yes. I don't know if we said that at all. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it does. We, we were hoping you'd figure it out, everyone. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the book that I opened with was the... Well, you know, I talked about death in the beginning of how I think that that's... Well, not I think, but Ernest Becker says that that is your primary motivator yeah, subconsciously. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it's cool. I'm just saying we didn't... Uh, yeah. It's also cool, like, uh, I think most people, if you say we're going to talk about death... Oh, that's depressing and down. I haven't felt like this at all has been a... In fact, it's been a fun, enlightening, exciting conversation, I think. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know if it's cultural or whatever. I was actually trying to look for instances of cultures where they celebrate death. I know in the Mexican culture, they have the Dia, Dia de los Muertos, you know, where they... I don't know if that's celebrating death, but like... Um, you know, and then in Buddhist culture, there's this idea of reincarnation. Um, so it's not actually final. Um, I was I was just thinking for myself why it is that we have negative connotations of death. And, you know, I think one of the things is just that there is uncertainty on the other side. And it's like it's um, terrifying to think about um, what's on the other side. I think for me, there is like the conception that there's something on the other side is just not correct. I, I don't, you know. It's like, do you remember what happened before you were born? It's going to be exactly like that, yeah. where you didn't exist. You know, um, that that's that that's my opinion about it. So that you know, I have less terror about it. But I also feel that so sometimes I think the terror in in 
terms of thinking about your own death is that you feel that you haven't done everything that you are supposed to do on this earth. So I, I, again, I can imagine that if you kind of are raising a family and you want to be around for your kids, that would be quite terrifying that, you know, you don't want to leave them behind or whatever. But then regardless of, uh, aside from that, is a reason, is there a reason that, you, let's say that, you know, you're, everybody would be taken care of. You don't have to worry about that. You know, why, why is there a fear of death other than, you know, the impact that you would have on the people that you leave behind? And I often think there is, you know, um, so I wonder where that where that kind of comes from. Um, I think for me, it's like I would have felt regret had I not lived kind of authentically, done all the things that I wanted to do. Um, if I'd gone to med school and become a doctor and been a dutiful son, I think that I probably would have felt I don't want to die now. I haven't lived yet. Um, and so now that I feel that I'm living, I feel that it's fine. I, um, I'm not, I'm not afraid of death in itself. I'm afraid of pain. Pain is not good. I don't want to die painfully, but um, the idea of not existing anymore is not terrifying to me at all. What about mm. you, man? Especially because you'll be unaware of it anyway. It doesn't even make sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, were you saying as well, you're questioning why we have, like death is a, a sad... Yeah. I, my thought on that was just, Maybe it's more like selfish, but uh, if someone dies, like you miss them, and that's that's a sad emotion, right? Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, I think that's. I mean, I I had a close friend die, and when he died, I felt gr- gratitude because um, I was so glad that we had met, and every time that we um, met up we would have these like three hour long, four hour long, five hour long conversations. We did exactly what we wanted to do. Um, and so I think I have that lens anyway, you know, in stoicism, I think it's called premeditatia malorum, where it's like you pre- the premeditation of evils, like you know that death is coming. Um, so just think about in the worst case scenario, what that would be like, and then, and then live in accordance with that. So that you don't have any regrets. Um, Is that also referred to as negative visualization? Negative visualization, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I've done that with you many times of like, if Lockie were to die, would I have any regrets? <laughs> and sorry to say that I don't. Uh, <laughs> like I would no, that's, obviously... That's kind of cool, actually. I'm glad. Yeah, no, because I, um, I say no when I mean no to you. And I, when I want to do something with you, I just go... Even if Lockie says no to this, it's what I want to do. So I'm just going to ask him. And um, and I say I love you. I don't have any um, hang-ups about that. And um, I, there's nothing left unsaid between us. And if I feel that there was, I would just say it. Yeah. I don't want to wait and, and be regretful when you die. So I have that thing in my head of like, when we meet up, I hug you. It's not a mistake, you know, because it might, it might be that I never see you again. Um, so I, I live in accordance with that. And as you know, I'm like, no, I'm not going to go to that fucking meeting. I might die. <laughs> <laughs> so death to me is this incredible motivator of, to me, it's just the fact of the matter. Uh, it's not sad because it's part and parcel of living. 
you, you can't stay awake forever and you also can't stay alive forever. It, you know, it's just, um, that's just the fact of the matter. If you try and deny it, you'll, as Ernest Becker says, you'll live in accordance with illusionary social games. And I don't want to do that. So um, for me, death is an incredible um, teacher. Um, it's part of the, it's part and parcel of the reality of being a being a finite human being, being a finite mammal. And I find that when I think in accordance with it, it like puts everything in perspective of like, I don't want to say that thing because then he might think weirdly of me or I don't want to do that because it might be embarrassing. You're going to die, bro. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I might use that next time I'm training and there's someone that's like scared of doing a skill. Look, Matt, you're going to die anyway. Well, so. he might injure himself. <laughs> I don't know about that one. No, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So then you at a funeral, how would you conduct yourself? Because I'm, I'm, I'm supposing based on your... Uh, the way you've considered this you may be less upset than the average person at a funeral i mean i was like when so i went to, when i went to this funeral what was nice about this funeral for my close friend was that it was a very small gathering there were probably like 10 of us only two people spoke i i spoke and then i think his son spoke um and uh it was very it was funny because uh, we talked about him as if he was still there. Like, oh, he would absolutely hate that we're doing this. He wouldn't want us to make a fuss. <laughs> and he, wanted, he wouldn't want us to be talking about him like this because, you know, he's a very humble person. And um, so we spoke about him as if he was still there. And we all just told great stories about our relationship with him. And like, I don't think anybody cried, really. Um, yeah, it was um, it was very intimate. I really liked it because I, you know, I've been to funerals before where it's like you know a hundred people, and it's like most of those people are acquaintances. Let's be honest, most of those people are not close friends. So I don't know. In those situations, it feels a little bit disconnected, um, and so I'm more solemn just because I don't want to be disrespectful to the people that are at the at the funeral. So I'm more I'm more solemn to be respectful. But in that case, where it was like I was the guy's one of the guy's closest friends, and it was a small gathering, I wouldn't say that we were happy, but I would say that we were all grateful. And there's a, there's a nice thing that happens in the air when I don't know. We all felt a great love for this person who was living an authentic life. He was in his like late fifties, but he studied philosophy with me. He, yeah, he died of a heart attack. Um, so he was living an authentic life. Like he wanted to study uh, philosophy and we talked about philosophy and mathematics and computer science and he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. And in our relationship, we said exactly what we wanted to say and did exactly what we wanted to do. Mm. So every time we met up was such a gift. That's maybe another way of thinking about it is like... You know the conversation that we're having now um when if if you didn't have um if i die and you don't have the opportunity to do more of them it's not as if you lost anything mm. you gained something yeah by by and i have too by our friendship 
Um, yeah, and, and every additional one is a gift. Ex- that's how it's, I look at it's it. It's not uh, expected. It's not, yeah. The, the other way to look at it is like, I thought I was going to have 100 and I only got 80. So, the, you know, the universe took 20 away from me. So the way that I think about it is that, you know, you're not owed anything. Yeah. You start from zero. Yeah. And every one that you get is, I, a bo- is a bonus. I love that. I think that's really important. I had that epiphany that you're not owed anything. Yep. Because um, I think especially as like privileged kids in Australia, you can, uh, I can understand how you might think, oh, like, and it probably even happens. It naturally, you, as you figure things out, you think you're entitled to certain things. And then when you don't get those things, it's exactly. difficult. Yep. But then ideally you learn you're entitled to nothing. And that's a lib- maybe it's a difficult pill to swallow, but it's very liberating. Um, yep. And then it makes you appreciate everything that you manage to, like, that comes your way. Or, yeah. And then to the deepest point, every day you get to spend with a friend. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can look at everything that way. Every breath. Yeah. Every time you look out the window and see the sun, you know, every moment like that could be your last. Huh. Yeah. I've been loving um, more and more so, man. Just, just the natural surrounds. It's funny, like I, often, I so often see something beautiful. Even just like last night, the sunset is stunning. Like golden clouds, you know, uh, orange skyline. And um, I sometimes I have that feeling like I want to take a photo of this because it's beautiful. But there's been so many beautiful natural moments that I, you can't take photos of them all. You know what I mean? So. Uh, yeah, isn't the world stunning though? Even the fact that we have a moon, I was thinking like, yeah. it's so cool that we have a moon. Like, not every planet would have one. Yeah. Um, what is it? Um, uh, is it Neptune has four or something? Oh, I don't remember, but yeah. Anyway, there's some lucky planets some with planet. multiples. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then in um, Star Wars, there's that one with the double moon. Yeah, that's um, cool. But I was just thinking, it's cool that we even have one because it's it's just awesome to look at. And it changes depending on cycle. Yeah, causes the tides. Yeah, yeah. it's just that's something I'm thankful for. It's because <laughs> it's it's just cool, you know. I, I can imagine a world without a moon, for example. Yeah, I don't think it would, but it would would be missing something we don't even know we could have. If you know what I mean. Um, so yeah. Hmm. I think that's. Um, key to happiness is not um not having uh, entitlement yeah, yeah not taking things for granted yeah because then as you said when you don't get it you feel that you're owed something yeah 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 that's a that's a good place to wrap up I think given, I think so man. given the quote that you want to make right yeah that's it you want to finish off on yeah so uh, to this is from Sam Harris and just um I think he says it really well, so for anyone out there, um, you can look into this further, Sam Harris. You've got this next interaction with another human being to make the world a marginally better place.